At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Leadership. They say it's the difference between success and failure, the X factor, the mechanism by which organizations take the jump from good to great. And yet the announcement of a major leader for a wealthy and influential organization was shrouded in confusion. Who is this leader I speak of, though not definitively? The newly established California Privacy Protection Agency head? The head coach of the Houston Texans? The president of Turkmenistan? No, that's Ashkan Sultani, Lovey Smith, and Sirdar Berdimuhamadov. Sirdar Berdimuhamadov. Sounds familiar, that surname. Sure does. It's Gurbanguli. Berdy Muhammadov's son, Gurbanguly Berdy Muhammadov. The muskmelon doesn't fall far from the tree in Turkmenistan, where Muskmelon Day is an annual celebration, a national holiday, where they celebrate the Turkmenbashi melon, praised for its aroma, taste, and massive size. And if insufficiently praised, citizens may be sentenced to confinement and being beaten routinely by Turkmenbashi melons. We have cucumber wraps, they have Turkmenbashi melon beatings, we don't judge. But as I said, those aren't the leaders I'm talking about. The leader in question is the new head of ISIS. The jihadist organization pledged allegiance to their new chief, Abu Hassan al-Hashemi al-Qurashi as an emir over believers and the caliph of Muslims. The organization's spokesperson stated in an audio recording these days. Sorry for that weird announcement these days. It was literally the only broadcast version of what I took to be a major news event. An AI-generated auto headline with Steely Dan's Peg playing in the background. The Times headline was, ISIS names a new leader but says little about him. The terrorist group announced its new leader as Abu al-Hassan al-Hashimi al-Karashi, but gave no information about his background or true identity. So who's that and what's that? Why the name? It's Adam Degur. And are we sure there actually is a new leader? If this is the standard for getting an article in the Times, don't you just say something like, yeah, sure, we got a new leader. This is Theranos to its stockholders meets drummer for Spinal Tap territory. Oh, the new guy's great. You gotta meet him. Now, just laugh, not here right now, but this guy will blow you away, literally. Why don't you leave a card? No, you can't meet him. I know he's got a busy schedule, but he is de bomb again, literally, but we can't put you in touch with him. 
You can understand the hesitancy of letting everyone know who is in charge, because according to Reuters, the announcement came weeks after the death last month of Abu Ibrahim al-Qurishi, the man who in turn succeeded al-Baghdadi in 2019 and became the group's second so-called caliph. Both Baghdadi and Qureshi died by blowing themselves up during U.S. raids in their hideouts in northern Syria. ISIS actuarial tables are sui generis. Reuters, in a later report, did go on to identify the new guy. His name is Juma Awad al-Badri, and reports are that he is the brother, the actual brother, of al-Baghdadi. According to Reuters, Badri has been the head of the Islamic State's, or ISIS's, Shura Council, which is a leadership group that guides strategy and decides succession when a caliph is killed or captured. Well, the strategy guidance biz has not been that great, though results are eerily consistent. I just say, I mean, I had to, I had to find a weird watch by four other human beings but me AI-generated clip to find out the new head of ISIS. Think about this. Think about what the status of ISIS was just a few years ago. Their vast control of territory, usually likened to the size of Belgium, how they were spurring terror, how they were sitting on a vast fortune said to be making a million dollars a day in oil and taxes, which is to say shakedowns of the citizens they controlled. Now they are more like an irritant, a global irritant. They are made weaker by U.S military, shall we say, interventions. But we, we as Americans, we as citizens, we as people who are once scared of ISIS and now don't think about them, we move on. In my case, we mock. My point is the world is a dangerous place. And it's not that we are incapable, as the greatest, most powerful country on earth, we're not incapable of handling the dangers. It's that we barely take time to give ourselves credit for threats defeated before we move on to threats anew. It doesn't mean we're doing a bad job. It just means the job is fairly enormous. On the show today, I spiel about scaredy cat Dems and brave, resolute Republicans. The true test of their mettle being the classic proving ground, answers to pollsters. But first, Todd Cashton is a psychology professor at George Mason University who has written a new book that tugs at my particular passions. The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. As you can imagine, the following conversation is full of plenty of great disagreement. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically. The exterior, that's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust, or perhaps we quell. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family 
Features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. John Stuart Mill on Liberty. If there are any persons who contest a received opinion or who will do so if law or opinion will let them, let us thank them for it. Open our minds to listen to them and rejoice that there is someone to do for us what we otherwise ought if we have regard for either certainty or the vitality of convictions to do with much greater labor for ourselves. I'll translate from that century to ours. Blessed be the rebels. Blessed be the questioners. They do us a great favor. And yet in our society, rebelliousness, though it does have the sheen of the cool, it is often punished. And more to the point, there is a good way to rebel or be a bit insubordinate and a bad way and a good way for the rebel to do it and a good way for the one being rebelled against to receive it. It's all discussed in Todd Kashtan's new book, The Art of insubordination, how to dissent and defy effectively. Todd, welcome to The Gist. Nice to be here. So I will say, and I think you could take it, since the book is all about rebellion and dissent, that I have a number of problems with your thesis, and yet uh, there were a few moments of brilliant clarity that is worth the price of admission. So with that said, um, shall I proceed with a couple of quibbles? Perfect dream opening to a conversation. Okay. Question one is insubordination by glomming on to this term. Are, is that a technique in and of itself? Because I sense that it was a, a sort of framing for what you're trying to do. Absolutely. The book was originally called Insubordination. And a number of organizations that I work with said, we can't buy copies of this book and pass this around because we have a social hierarchy. And we're the government intelligence office, and that you have to abide by the rules and status of where you lie. And one of the things about this was to steal a perceived negative and reinterpret it as a positive, as you did in the opening, which is insubordination at the core is that you have authority figures. We all live in social hierarchies, and there are lots of social hierarchies. I mean, even if we're in a group of friends at a party, there's someone that, that grabs the audience attention more than other people and people want to be closer to certain people more than others. And we have to acknowledge this existence. And part of being insubordinate is you question the norms, you question authority, you question the rules because you wonder, do they work? Are they dysfunctional? And who made them in the first place? And is there a better way? But it's not always a good thing, just like rebellion. And there is a chapter in praise of rebellion. But rebellion is not a good thing. I mean, my theory, my philosophy is that rebellion and insubordination or subordination are pretty much neutral. It depends what you're rebelling against and it depends what you're subordinate to. But that said, in order to make sure and in order to uh, assure ourselves that it's a good or quote unquote good or bad rebellion, you should at least be open to the possibility and the issues raised by the rebel or by the insubordinate. Yeah. So I built in the equation of really talking about principled insubordination. And with that part, we're separating ourselves from disingenuous rebellions, reckless rebellions, or just spite or revenge being your source of rebellion. 
And so the principled part has a couple of elements that are important. And so you could think about, is this authenticity that's involved in your rebellion? Is this something that you genuinely believe in or are you trying to win social approval and points? And we know just by this, you know, this slowly dinking into the world of social media, a lot of things people say are not what they believe because as soon as you have a conversation with them in a small group with dimly lit backgrounds, mm-hmm. you've kind of realized like, oh, wait, they don't believe that chest feeders is the proper term that should be used by physicians because really the only people who breastfeed towards children are women. But they use this word not because they believe in it. It's because this is what gets your the group that you identify with. You're going to show as almost like a button on your shirt. I'm a good member. I'm a loyal member. I know what to say. The greatest safeguard to conformity mistakes is someone that is willing to dissent. And even if that dissenter is wrong, it at least puts the question in people's heads, which is, I wonder if we're pushing too hard and too fast and maybe we're missing alternative ideas and explanations. I don't know. I don't know about the history of conformity, but it does strike me that there are so many impediments to to it these days, including technology, but also uh, a voguishness for thinking that bad ideas uh, are harmful. And so uh, this is my question to you. I wonder if all of that is incompatible with a different way of thinking, which is quite prevalent these days. We are in crisis mode. And what we need to do, because we haven't done this in the past, is to call out those who need calling out. And that is the way to get change. Are those two ideas in fundamental tension? I think you can have both, but I think you have to have more nuance and precision. Mm-hmm. I, and I'll give you a concrete example. I had an argument with the president of George Mason University, which was there was a there's a call by a number of faculty of we don't want to have Trump supporters at our university. Mm-hmm. And I asked him and I asked the faculty, which was that, what do you want to do with 50 percent of the United States that actually is, is our conservative voters? Like, like what better place to have them? than to have have them experience higher education in a classroom with a wide variety of people and learn of wide variety of subjects, including the course of human history. I mean, where else do you want them to go? And you think of criminal justice reform when people come out of prison. I mean, it's such a horror show because when they apply for a job, once they get that question, yes or no, did you have a criminal record? When they apply for housing, yes or no, do you have a criminal record? And then you ask yourself, why, do, why is there a revolving door in the prison system? It's because you haven't given them an out to, for reconciliation to re-enter society. And so I, don't, I think the tension, the way to resolve this, and this is you know, chapter seven in the book, which was really thinking about how do you become a good winner if you are able to be effectively alter the norms in society when you were once the minority and now you're in power? And we're seeing a real problem in this where people that that were once previously minorities, they engage in the exact same behaviors and tactics of the people that once were overruling and controlling and preventing them from living their own lives, which is we view diversity of opinion as an outcry and a problem as opposed to a vehicle to social progress. It's very it's I say 
almost, it's not just rare, it's almost unheard of for a former rebel <laughs> to now recognize and have a self perception of themselves as the winner, the ones who are now uh, at the top dictating to others. That's just not how self-conception works, I find. Yeah, you know, we could start with the icons, right? I mean, Nelson, I mean, there's a reason you got, you know, Mandela and Gandhi and Galileo and, you know, is there's a point where when you are effective at rebelling against problematic status quo, you can become like just a one name icon. And Mandela, mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many great stories of how he approached and had dinner and broke bread with white people in Africa that were completely completely against desegregation. And he didn't dismiss them once he had power. I mean, he, I mean, he had legions of people around the world that were like in love with him, supporting him, would put their life on the line for him. And still he went back to, you know, whatever is the analogy for a neo-Nazi in America. He went to those characters and, and had them meet him in the presidential office, not to publicly shame them, not to dismiss them, not to ostracize them, but say, hey, how can we work together so we can have some of a, of a single society that can have our diversity of views together? And, and we have to really have these iconic characters in a soldier because by reverse engineering them, we can figure out there are ways psychologically to work as the victor with the once, the once powerful establishment characters who've been knocked down a notch. Right. So Mandela, granted, perhaps the man or the human with the most grace in the history or in the last hundred years. Plus, if the obstacle is to self-identifying as one of the winners, you know, once you're named the first president of South Africa, that's an indication. Maybe I've won. Apartheid is gone. We redesigned the flag. I would say, however, for most people, include people who've been let's say, fighting the good fight, or at least they perceive themselves as fighting the good fight, they will never perceive themselves as anything other than still a, a, victim. a, a victim, well, or just a member, a righteous member uh, of the oppressed. Maybe they've gotten some money or some attention along the way, but they're still the oppressed and they still have to use the tactics of the rebel. We live in a victimhood culture right now where you get status points by pointing out the adversity you experienced. I can go out right now, as opposed to me talking about my new book, and as opposed to me talking that I've run the well-being lab, I can go around and tell the narrative how I lost my mom when I was 12 and my dad walked out when I was two. That just happens to not be the narrative where I lead and walk through the world and never have. And I'm not dismissing anyone who has a similar narrative, but here's what we know. We know from research from Sergei Moscovici from 1980, and he asked the question, what happens when people lead with the idea that they are a victim that needs to be, receive compensation for historical wrongdoings versus, versus someone who is a minority? And minority we're talking about, you don't have the numbers, you don't have the power and status, or you don't have the demographics that matches other people around you. Any one of those, you're the minority. What if the minority presents themselves as a victim versus presenting themselves as, I want to advocate for equality. I just want to be treated with dignity and fairness. Nothing special, no special accommodations. And what they found was in their research, and this was done in, 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 a, in Rome with gypsies, and they were mistreated in similar ways to kind of, you know, black Americans in the United States. That's 
as if I had to say that twice. Mm. And what they found was that gypsies that presented themselves as victims that required compensation, they either money or they want a quota in colleges, in government. Those, when they asked for that as opposed to equality, what happened was people were more likely to give them the concession, give them the money, give them the quota in the schools and in the government. And because of that, when they made that handshake deal, the majority, it alleviated their guilt and they no longer felt that they had to do anything for them. And what happened was there was no difference in how they were treated. The status quo is the same. They experienced just as much bias towards them from everybody else than before because the money and the quotas sealed the deal. And so this research points to something really important. You have to ask yourself, what is it you want in the short term, but what is it that you want in the long term, the long term in terms of societal change? And a lot of people, by playing the role of victim, by leading with that as opposed to seeking dignity and tolerance, they get what they ask for. Right. But there's no change in the real big things that they're actually looking for or should be looking for. So I was thinking this as I was reading the book and during our conversation. It seems very difficult to parse the legitimate rebellion that we should um, at least really consider, if not, um, if if not cheer on and the kind of rebellion that would be pretty bad for society and even the individual. And you have ways, you have uh, heuristics or ways of kind of deciding between the two. But from the outside, the person who goes, there's a school board meeting, it's, you know, maybe it's in Loudoun County, maybe it's somewhere else, and there are two speakers in a row, right? And one speaker says, I don't want the 1619 Project taught in the schools, and I'm rebelling against this idea, this crushing uh, idea that's coming from liberal elites making us think this way and making my children feel bad about themselves. Now, from my own perspective, I hate the idea of banning books in the 1619 Project. I don't know if that really is a rebellion. The next person says almost the exact opposite. I I am rebelling against the idea, you know, the fact that this is the former capital of the Confederacy or the state that was. And what I need you to teach my children are all these points about DEI. Is there a way to say one of these really is a rebel, one of these isn't, or one of these should be taken seriously, or one of these shouldn't? Or are there a series of questions or steps to really evaluate the value of each of these conflicting ideas? I'm so glad you're bringing this to the concrete. Um, so I think it's the wrong question of which one of these are principled rebellions. I yes, think the, I think it's better to think of psychologically, how can we extract the true motivations that underlie people's actions? And so, you know, take take the first one, for example, which is kind of, you know, let's let's ban the 1619 project. Well, the so that so then you have a question, which is that we have a student body in this school where we have the predominant the predominant race tends to be white what are and you ask from a place of curiosity what's your suggestion if it's not the 1619 project for dealing with the fact of here's where we have we have kids young kids who are 
you know, 12, 13, 14 years of age who know nothing about, you know, the outside world, but they do know that they are experiencing a sense of a lack of belonging, a feeling as if they're not competent, and they're being told by adults in the community, even right here, right now, that they are not, their viewpoint isn't valued. What would you like to do as a community that's trying to educate our young to deal with that? So I think it's by asking that question, by being humble, by being curious, and and actually having a, a willingness to actually try to get someone else's perspective. Get perspectives, be humble, be curious. You activate those three virtues, and then we can work with, because in that comment that that person is making is a grain of, I want to do something to help the education of youth. So if Mm. you can meet them there on that moral dimension, the underlying moral dimension of, I want to reduce, increase fairness and reduce harm, we can meet there and not get bogged down about the 1619 book or the 1619 topic. Mm, That's great. And I think we can do the same one for the second one in terms of, you know, um, you know, the parents, you know, the irrespective of their demographic, who says, listen, I want my kids to know about what happened in the past and use these historical wrongs because, you know, the basic tenets of history is we learn not to repeat our mistakes. I mean, it's just like Silicon Valley or any entrepreneur, you know, fail fast, fail often, make tons of mistakes. For us to live that, we have to teach history that goes on there. We're not teaching history. So for them, you ask similar questions from a you know, place of curiosity, taking perspectives and intellectual humility, which is that, okay, how can we have that conversation and that dialogue in class knowing that some of the students are coming from a place of conservatism where they really love this country, even with all of its blemishes and all of its failings. So how can we, how can we work with both of those ideas of work with historical wrongdoings and also have a sense of um, nationalism and respect for your country. And in both those cases, there's not going to be an answer right then and there. Right. But you're getting, you're having a, a productive conflict and all productive conflict is, is it's information. Like you're working with emotionally charged information and we mm-hmm. can't teach our children to be comfortable being uncomfortable if we're going to fight to the end for our cause and not being willing to contemplate, consider that there are alternative ways of doing things. I want to train my kids to realize you don't know the way as you walk through life with these difficult decisions because I don't know the way and I'm surrounded by experts that don't know the way who are much smarter than I am. It happens there. So we constantly have to think about how can we model virtues and strengths, activate them, and then bring them into all of our problem-solving strategies. And tune in tomorrow, because that's just part one of our interview, as I and Professor Cashdan discuss how we reconcile when one party has changed their views, and also social cryptomnesia. That'll be good. Gravity had a good run, but it's time to feel the weightlessness of the Brooks Glycerin 21. These running shoes feature nitrogen-infused DNA Loft V3 cushioning, 
Brooks has even magnified the plushness to elevate the softness to new levels. And if you want extra support, find these same features in the Brooks Glycerin GTS 21. Learn more and shop now at brooksrunning.com. That's brooksrunning.com. I feel good. Dad, are you singing to your cereal? Yes, I am. Like I knew that I would. No, a dance too? Come on, Ava. Silk almond milk. Starts the morning on a high note. Yow! Songs, dances, and dad jokes. So good! So good! I got you! Mm. Silk almond milk. With calcium, vitamins A, D, and E. Feel plenty good. And now the spiel. An interesting poll came out about a week ago. Interesting for what it said and what's being said about it. I'll let Harris Faulkner of Fox News give us the top line numbers from a segment that aired yesterday. More than half of Democrats, 52% say they would cut and run if America were invaded. Only 40% say that they would stick it out. This contrasts sharply with the 68% of Republicans who say they would stay to fight for the country. Republican and conservative commentators were livid at their hypothetically cowardly countrymen. Charles Cook, writing in National Review, further parsed the numbers. Quote, among 18 to 34-year-olds, the numbers are 45% fight, 48% flee. Or to put it another way, a majority of the prime-aged Americans whom the United States would need were such a crisis to arise. Imagine that they would flee if that crisis ever came for shame. A different conservative, ideologically a bit to the left of Cook, Jonah Goldberg, scoffed at the pollster-determined military readiness metric, saying he didn't believe these numbers were real. Quote, yes, I'm saying that some tough-talking dudes with these colors don't run bumper stickers would be hightailing it out of here, and some snowflake soy boys would be ambushing Russian convoys in northern Michigan. I don't say this because of any hidden admiration for the soy boys or animosity for the good old ones. I'm just saying that humans respond to reality differently than they respond to hypotheticals. The quote has ended, and I, Mike, will say I agree. However, what we know of this poll does comport with what we know of pro-militarism in Americans. 20% more Republicans than Democrats say they would encourage their children to join the military. The self-reported political identification of service members is much more heavily Republican than Democrats. Veterans pre-World War II were also much more likely to be Republicans. Post-World War II, a little more likely, but a lot of that is that old people are a bit more likely to be Republicans. But here's a big, big factor being ignored. Men are more likely to be Republicans. In Ukraine, the call is for men to fight. Pew has surveyed data showing that in the U.S., Democrats are 56% female, 42% male. So that explains some of why Democrats are more flee and Republicans are more fight. Also, there is a weird thing going on in this poll. The idea of not staying and fighting, aka fleeing, is being taken as an exact synonym for cowardice. But over 3 million Ukrainians have fled, according to the U.N., they're called refugees, and I don't sense that we think of them as cowardly. I don't even sense that the toughest of Jonah's tough-talking 
camo-wearing, chaw-dipping, macho-pole answerers look down on them. So why are the hypothetical fleers being judged so much more harshly than the actual ones? And oh, they are being judged harshly. This was Mark Thiessen's analysis of why younger people wouldn't want to fight. But I think it might have something to do with this whole culture of safetyism. You know, we've, we've raised an entire generation of kids to be afraid to go walk outside after dark. Or afraid to take a full frontal assault from a battery of a 120 millimeter heavy mortar. Thanks, Rafi. So that was from one Fox segment on this poll. Against the backdrop of the horrors of war, we, all of us, certainly feel a little helpless. We all take some solace in the image of brave Ukrainian citizens and their steadfast leader. But these positive feelings towards the brave or unsettling feelings of impotence, not enough for some. There exists a need for a different kind of nourishment within the Fox audience. For two weeks, all we've had is general bipartisan agreement on what the U.S. response should be and further bipartisan agreement that Biden is more or less pursuing the right policy and that will not do. This poll provided a way in for what the Fox viewer has been missing recently, the sustenance of hatred towards his fellow Americans. Thank you, Quinnipiac pollsters. Or maybe thank you, jelly-spined Democrats who weren't even strategic enough to lie to a pollster. This poll just goes to show what Kayleigh McEnany has been saying since she was a Trump spokesperson and continues to say, or did until the war interrupted her as a Fox contributor. We have a generation who is being told America's founding should be reoriented to 1619, that American exceptionalism is not real, um, that we're systemically racist, our justice system. Um, this, these are the things that we're being told where people, I feel, are ashamed to say I'm an American, and that's a really sad point in this country. Okay, game on. Fox can once again talk about the 1619 Project. Fox can talk about complaints of protesters. Can they wedge in crime rates? Or if you live in some of these big blue-led cities uh, with the crime burgeoning. Yes. Like right now, they told us today that potentially a serial killer is on the loose here in New York and possibly with ties with D.C. You got to read about that to even believe it. So we're going to need toughness from our young people. Harris Faulkner there saying something about rising crime rates connected to American fecklessness. In fact, wouldn't it follow that Americans would be gun shy with all the gunplay? Anyway, guns. We got to get to guns. Guns are in there. Yes, in blue states, they have been trying to disarm the public. And I hope this gives a lot of people pause because you want to be able to defend yourself. You want to be able to defend your family from the unknown. The unknown includes the Russian army, apparently, right around that shadowy corner. Remember how Ukrainians got armed is that guns were distributed from police stations and weapon depots to use in a fight against an army many times more powerful than their own. The U.S. military, on the other hand, is the most powerful in the world. We just don't need Rusty to chip in with his Glock thanks to Missouri having passed a concealed carry law. It's not going to make a difference. Just to take one or two seconds more on this dumb, dumb argument. You need guns to protect against the unknown? That's what she said, the unknown? Hmm. If you're a Second Amendment enthusiast, what you want to argue is that private citizens need guns to protect against assailants or verified, very real threats that we can all agree are threats. You don't want to be shooting at ambiguities. You know, this thing confuses me. Therefore, we need to shoot it. Pump a few rounds into the fog. Ay, ay. 
More from this segment, I swear, I will stop bludgeoning you eventually, but this one last one couldn't go unremarked upon. Emily Campagno contributed to this brainstorming sesh by pointing to a different breed of villain altogether. Postmates. Someone who lives off of their laptop with food being delivered to their <clears throat> apartment door every night doesn't really understand. We all knew that cable news thrived on conflict. But when we have a real, live, honest-to-goodness, no-badness land war in Europe, that works for CNN? It turns out it's not the kind of conflict that's good enough for Fox ratings. Fox can't monetize war as well as they can monetize the culture war. Culture war is the force that gives them meaning. And when they get a whiff of a scrap of a piece of evidence of that culture war, you can tell they're eager to grab their helmets and head towards the barricades. Quickly, the five. This is what we drilled for. Let your training kick in. Blame guns, godlessness, and Grubhub. You don't need a pollster to tell us that this is the battle we live for. And you can say that this is the battle they don't even know how not to fight. That's it for today's show. Corey Juarez, the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pasca is not the architect of Oleg Deripskaya's house. She wants you people who've occupied it in London to know that. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The GIST. And thanks for listening. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com